Good evening. My name is Evan Smith. I'm the CEO of the Texas Tribune. I am so happy to welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival. Good to have you here. Thank you for being here. We have a great program on this campus. We've actually gotten started a little earlier than normal with some content today, some uh, sessions today that have been really fun as a run-up to the official opening session. That's where we are right now, at the opening session of the 2017 Tribune Festival with Senator Al Franken, who I'll be bringing out in a couple of minutes. We're excited to have a great conversation with Senator Franken and to kick off what's going to be a really wonderful weekend. Text Tribune is a public media organization. We cover public policy, politics, and state government. We are supported by all of you. We do our work for you. We're also supported by the generous contributions of foundations and some corporations. And we have sponsors at all of our events. And we have uh, three uh, particular sponsors I want to acknowledge and thank and ask you to acknowledge and thank today. Our presenting sponsor for the third straight year is Walmart. They are back with us because they embrace the mission of the Tribune and they embrace the mission of this event. And through their sponsorship, they're providing the Tribune with resources that allow us to not only put on the biggest festival we have ever put on, but also to do the really important accountability journalism that we do all year long. I want to thank the University of Texas at Austin for hosting us for the seventh straight year. Every year we have been on this campus. And I want to tell you that it is a near-perfect partnership, the Tribune's partnership with the University of Texas. If only there could have been a little more construction this year. Only a little more. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Ordinarily, uh, President Greg Fenvis would be here to welcome you on behalf of the university, as he has done in the past and as Bill Powers did in the years before him when he was president. Unfortunately, President Fenvis is away this weekend on family business. Apparently, he's not the only one who waits until a bye football weekend to make plans. <laughs> I know he wanted to be here to wish you his very best as you make your way around the 40 acres. And in his absence, I'll thank him. I want to thank Gary Suswine and the staff of the University of Texas at Austin who make it possible for us to put on this festival. Please give them a big hand. Finally, I want to thank our friends at South by Southwest. They know how to put on a festival, right? The work they do for us is a little bit like the submerged part of the iceberg. The part you don't see is as important as the part you do see. And they're often the part you don't see, but they are absolutely crucial to the success of this event. And we are as grateful as can be to be partners with the South by team. Please give the South by guys a great big hand. We have a whole bunch of other sponsors I'm going to quickly acknowledge. This will be read quickly like the end of a Cialis commercial or some other drug commercial, I promise you. But we love them, we do, and they have supported this event in many cases year over year, and we absolutely do appreciate their making it possible for us to be here. AARP, Accenture, Anheuser-Busch, the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life, AT&T, the Austin Community College District, Beer Alliance of Texas, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, the Boeing Company, Centerpoint Energy, Chariot, Comcast, the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, Deloitte, Doctors Hospital at Renaissance, Educate Texas, Equality Texas, Google, Greater Texas Water Company, Gulf States Toyota, HEB, the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation, Hill and Knowlton Strategies, Houston First, Houston Tillotson University, IBC Bank, JP Morgan Chase, the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT Austin, 
Lockheed Martin Aeronautics, the Lumina Foundation, the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, Messina Hoff Winery and Resort, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, the Nature Conservancy, NRG, Old Castle Materials, Encore, Operation Blue Shield, Pearson, PepsiCo, the presenting sponsor of tonight's opening session. Quest Diagnostics, Raise Your Hand Texas, Ride Austin, Schweike, Southwest Airlines, Spurs Sports and Entertainment, hashtag Go Spurs. The St. David's Foundation, St. David's Healthcare, Teladoc, the Texas A&M University System, Texas Association of Realtors, Texas Central, Texas Council for Developmental Disabilities, Texas Education Grant Makers, Advocacy Consortium, the Texas Exes, the Texas Municipal League, the Texas Politics Project, the Texas Transportation Institute, Tito's Vodka, I will text Tito to tell him that you reacted that way. <laughs> Toyota North America, Uber, the University of Texas Press, Upbring, UT Southwestern, Valero, Vistra Energy, and the Walton Family Foundation. Give them all a big hand. I also want to acknowledge, as this is the opening of the festival, we're not going to have a chance to do this again, at least for a couple days, our great media partners who have made it possible to tell you all about the good work that we're doing this weekend and have partnered with us to be on this campus alongside us, the Austin American Statesman, the Austin Chronicle, Community Impact, Houston Public Media, KLRU, KXAN, Marfa Public Radio, The Monitor, The Rivard Report, Slate, Texas Monthly, The Texas Standard, Think from KERA, Univision Austin, and the Washington Post. Give them a big hand to If you are a member of the Texas Tribune, and as I said, as a public media organization, we are citizen-supported, we appreciate you absolutely. Some people here I know have been members from the very beginning and have made it possible, now going on year eight, for us to do this work. And we love our members, and we thank you very much. If you are a member, thank you. If you are not a member, we'd love to have you become one. One of the things that we like to do at this festival is to have a raffle to encourage people to become members. So what I'm about to say applies. If you are a member, you can give a little bit more to enter. If you are not a member and you become a member by Sunday at midnight, you are entered in a membership raffle. You will win a three-night stay at the Hotel San Cristobal Baja, an intimate beachside resort on the southwestern edge of the Baja Peninsula, and you have airfare from Southwest Airlines thrown in. If you are a member, you become a member. If you, are, if you are a member, pardon me, you give a little bit more, chip in over and above your membership. If you're not a member, become one, and you are entered into this raffle by Sunday at midnight. Text the word TRIBUNE to 444-999, and you will get instructions on how to give. We would love it if you would become a member and support accountability journalism in a state that desperately needs it. We'd love to have you become a member. <laughs> After tonight's opening session, there's a party on the main mall. My understanding is that the UT drumline, the UT band will be here to lead you out to the party. So look for them. Please join us outside for the party. There'll be food, there'll be drink, and Senator Franken will be selling and signing copies of his book. And please buy it. It is a great book. You will love it. So please join us at the party uh, on the South Mall following our session. Silence your phones. Please, for the benefit of everybody else in the room, silence your phones. If you want to tweet about this event, we certainly encourage it. Hashtag TribFest17. We're going to do about 50 to 55 minutes of conversation. Balance of time will be questions from the audience. A little different this year. Rather than have you get up at mics and ask questions, we're going to ask you 
to submit your questions to us electronically. Tweet at us using the hashtag AskTrib. There's also an opportunity for you to text us. Text the word AskTrib. There's a phone number I'll tell you, but it's going to be up on the screen behind us when we go to Q&A, 512-549-8450. You will be prompted to submit a question. I've got an iPad up here. I'm going to have the question sent to me electronically, and we will get to as many of your questions as possible. Okay? All good? Now it is my pleasure to introduce the opening session of the 2017 Texas Tribune Festival. As I noted from this podium last year when Ohio governor and Republican presidential candidate John Kasich was our kickoff keynote, it is our mission on this night to put you all at the center of the discussion about politics and policy at this moment in this state and around this nation. We think big and bold and we choose our Friday night guest deliberately. We work on this for months or as much as a year in advance. Sometimes it's tough sledding to get the right person or to even know who the right person is. Sometimes it's easy. This year was easy. <laughs> when news was reported in December of 2015 that U.S. Senator Al Franken was writing a memoir, a psychological thriller about his experiences in the Senate, he joked. <laughs> But in reality, a book that covered his career from Saturday Night Live to his years in Washington, we and everybody else in the Ideas Festival business thought, file that away. When publication of the book, called Giant of the Senate, was set for late spring of 2017, we all broke open that file. Back then, we didn't know that Senator Franken's book would be a number one New York Times bestseller. Yes. Although we should have known because a number of his other books, including Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and Lying Liars, uh, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them a Fair and Balanced Look at the Right were also number one bestsellers. We did not know if the timing would work out, if Senator Franken's publisher would send him to Austin one time and one time only over the summer or ever as part of his tour. We did not know that his public profile would grow as he made headlines with his tough questioning of Jeff Sessions, President Trump's nominee to be Attorney General, or Betsy DeVos, the President's pick for Education Secretary, or Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's Supreme Court pick, to the point that he would be talked about as a possible and plausible presidential candidate in 2020. All we knew at that time was we wanted him badly, and fortunately, we got him. Al Franken was born in St. Louis Park, Minnesota in 1951, graduated from Harvard College in 1973. He spent many years as a comedy writer. He did two separate stints on the staff of Saturday Night Live, and later worked in radio as a host on the progressive network Air America. Always interested in politics, he first seriously considered moving home and running for office after the death of his friend and mentor, U.S. Senator Paul Wellstone, shortly before the 2002 election. Six years later, he defeated Wellstone's successor, Norm Coleman, by 312 votes cast out of nearly, uh, by, by 312 votes, pardon me, out of nearly 2.9 million cast. He was reelected by a considerably larger margin in 2014. It's exciting to have him here, isn't it? It's exciting. What a great way to get this weekend started. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our opening keynote conversation with a giant of the Senate, the Honorable Al Franken. Thank you. 
Thank you again. That's great. Very good. Good. There you go. I'm over here, right? Is that right? Good. Thank you. Save it for the end. Save it. Save it for the end. <laughs> Senator, uh, good to be with you. Thanks you know, for being Evan, here. It's good to be here, but Evan, I, I was off stage and I couldn't hear the. Could you just repeat the names of the sponsors? Yes, I will, actually. <laughs> Come on back on stage in 15 yeah. minutes, I'll be done. That's good. So this book has been called the funniest book ever written by a U.S. senator, which is both undeniably true and a very low bar to clear. Yes. Right? A absolutely. I'm sorry I haven't read Mike Lee's book. Maybe Mike Lee's book is funnier. I don't know. Nope. Nope? Okay. <laughs> no, Check it, that it, off is, it is one of right. the uh, worst genres that publishing turns out. The, se the senator's book? The senator's book. Right. Well, you've, you've, you've ruined it for everybody else because this is a great book. Thank I, you. I want to ask oh, by you. The way, yes. By the way, you yes. got the title wrong. It is? Al Franken, Giant oh, oh, of the okay, Senate. Oh, okay, okay, okay. By Al Franken. By Al Franken. <laughs> I don't want to cheat you out of one more mention. That's good. I want to ask you why, why you wrote the book. I have a very clear memory of you getting elected in 2008 and taken office in the January month of the next year and, and no, saying no, no. explicitly. I, did, I didn't take office then. I took office oh, in July. After the runoff in July. And, and when you got into that, when you got into the Senate saying, I'm going to follow the Hillary Clinton model. She had been a celebrity who entered the Senate, a different kind of celebrity some years before you. You got in there as a celebrity and you said, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to be a workhorse, not a show horse. I'm going to go to committee meetings. I'm going to do my homework. I'm not going to talk to the national press. This kind of book is not the kind of thing that I think back to that Al Franken writing. Right. So at some point you changed your mind or you evolved or what have you to the point that you felt like this was a good idea. Yes, that's one of the many things that I explain in the book. In the book. Uh, yeah. To answer that very question, but I'll explain it here. Yeah. Um, they haven't read it yet. Some yeah. of them have read it. So uh, basically, uh, I won, as you mentioned, my uh, first race by 312 Twelve votes. votes. And part of the reason I wrote this book is a lot of people ask the same questions of me. Uh, and have been asking since I uh, got to the Senate, which uh, first one is, is being uh, a United States Senator as much fun as working on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> w why would it be? But it's the best job I've ever had, and I'll yep. get into that later, but you get to work to improve people's lives, and that's what it should be about. Uh, the other is, how does how'd you make the transition from being a comedian to a senator? Because that hadn't happened before. So um, I write about that, and the, the answer to the second question is hard, because, and especially in my first race, I ran against Norm Coleman, and who um, uh, basically took everything the Republicans took everything I had ever written or said in comedy and put it through a uh, $15 million machine called the Dehumorizer, <laughs> and, which was built with some very 
uh, you know, state-of-the-art uh, Israeli technology to <laughs> take the context and irony or hyperbole or take anything out of a joke and right. make it not funny and make it offensive. So uh, that's what their campaign was. It right. was a just tearing down my character using stuff I had written. So, um, imagine that, right? Yeah, and well, they also uh, made, they made you out to be, or attempted to make you out to be, not serious and also potentially dangerous in that job. You know, this guy would not be a good senator. He'd well, I'll be bad humiliate the people yeah, of right. Minnesota by saying right. inappropriate things, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and as I said, I won by th 312 votes. So as soon as when I got to the Senate after an eight-month process. The recount was over pretty fast. The recount was, uh, you know, the, the day after the election, the morning after the election, uh, Coleman declared victory. He was ahead by about 700 votes at that time and said if, if, he said, if I were Franken, I would step back and let the healing begin. I won the recount like January 4th and by that was about 225 at, at that point, and that's when he took the anti-healing position. Shoes on the other foot. And right? he yeah. stuck with it for another six months. Six months. And um, so, you know, and don't worry about it, Norm Coleman. He landed, I mean, uh, he is now serving uh, the people of Minnesota as a paid lobbyist for Saudi Arabia. So don't worry, he landed on his feet. He's just fine. Um, so when I got to the Senate, I, of course, uh, just, uh, you know, at this point, it was incumbent upon me to be, to show the people of Minnesota that I was there for a serious yeah. purpose, serious which time. I was, that's why I was there. Right. And so, and I did meet with, uh, my chief of staff, Drew Lippman, had me meet with Tamara Lozado, who had been Hillary Clinton's chief of staff. And, um, you know, basically it was, um, you know, she, she had parallel things. She had, some, she had a lot of, more celebrity than I did, obviously, and when she got to the Senate, and she'd been the first lady, yep. and her husband had kind of, a number of the Republicans had voted to impeach him or to convict him. <laughs> and um, so Democrats were a little skeptical, you know, a little wary that she would take their camera time and Republicans might have some hostility. So uh, I just uh, didn't take, I'd say, no national press. I'm going to be a workhorse, not a show horse. Yep. I'm going to get to know my Republican colleagues and all, of, you know, that's what I did. And then uh, after in my second election, I won that very comfortably, and then after that, I said, "Okay, now right. I can I can write this. Yeah. I can write a book that's right. that's funny." Now. Well, you know, they're still dinging you for it. I mean, the reality is, just a couple of weeks ago, when you decided to uh, to disapprove of uh, a, a nominee to be a judge for Minnesota, uh, like blue slipping, I guess is the is the phrase, right? Yeah, uh, by not turning in my blue. Not slip. turning in your blue slip. The Wall Street Journal said they did an editorial about you complaining about this, and they referred to him as the comedian of the Senate or something. I mean, they're still trying to hold the fact that you're a comedian uh, against you. The Wall Street Journal editorial page is uh, actually I um, in 
Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and other observations. I, uh, no, no, actually I'm wrong. I was in Lies and Lying Liars who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right that I uh, uh, took them to task. And they're just, their news, the news and the, uh, there's a separation between the news and the editorial page. And the editorial page is, is pretty awful. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't mind that. You don't, you don't care about that. It. How yeah. hard has it been for you to resist being funny in the Senate in those, those first six years? I mean, you, you, you talk in the book a little bit, it's a little bit like an interior monologue. You talk about all the times that you thought about making a joke and didn't make a joke. It's actually quite funny to read after the fact, but I wonder how difficult it was for you to do that. It was uh, excruciating because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I write about an example. I'm, I was, I'm on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, and we have a hearing yep. uh, on ENDA, the Employee Non-Discrimination Act. And still in this country, there are like 30 states where you can get married if you're uh, LGBT uh, to the same gender uh, partner, and uh, then get fired on Monday because you're you're gay, and that's legal in like 30 states. Uh, so I want you know some of us, a lot of us, Democrats especially, wanted to end that, and end uh, was the employment employee non discrimination act. So we had a hearing on this, and. Uh, this was the first hearing, this was November of 2009, and up until then, at every hearing there had been at least one Republican. You know, the ranking member would always show up. And, but this one, there was not one Republican showed up for this hearing, and I'm, uh, the, I'm the newest uh, Democrat, so I'm sitting at the end, and I'm thinking, it'd really be funny to say, I think it's a shame that none of the gay members of the committee showed up. <laughs> and the, the hearing room was filled with LGBT activists. Right. So It was a home game for you, basically, right? I mean, well, yeah. You had the, you had the room. And yeah. I just heard this voice. Could have done it. Tell it, it'll kill. And that was... <laughs> That was the devil on this shoulder, and the angel on the shoulder was going, now, Al, you know why you came here. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, I had all this time to think about this. <laughs> and so finally, you do it. Uh, the devil and the angel each got their own uh, devil and angel, and the <laughs> devil's angel and the angel's devil uh, worked it out, and so I didn't tell the joke, but I. It's I, a good one, though. It's and, and honestly, that's one of the great things about this book is all the stuff that you thought you might have said or wish you had said is all. Yeah, and it was funny because even after I won re-election, my staff I basically had instituted my own dehumorizer as soon as I got to the Senate, which, which was my staff, and they said, right, and and they were everybody was saying, no, you can't say that, no, can't you can't say that. Say that. Right. And then after I had won re-election and the Supreme Court decided on, uh, on, on marriage equality. And uh, Scalia had written just a, just a terrible, hateful dissent. And so 
I wanted to, I dictated a press release, which uh, was uh, Senator Al Franken today applauded the Supreme Court for its decision on marriage equality, uh, but called Justice Scalia's dissent, quote, very gay. <laughs> And I had the, this was a long drawn out fight. I'm going, come on. I got reelected, <laughs> you know. Can't, and, can't you let me have this one. And right? yeah. let me, come on. People will That's like funny. that. They'll enjoy that. They'll love that. And um, it's in the book. I it's got in it the in the book. Um, let, let's, let's talk about why you, why you ran. I mentioned Paul Wellstone when I introduced you. You really did uh, look to Paul Wellstone as you know, a good person, somebody who was in politics Paul for the right reasons. Paul did reason, politics. Right? Yeah. Uh, he said that politics isn't about power. It isn't about money. It isn't about winning for the sake of winning. It's about working to improve people's lives. And that's why I... Yeah. yeah. And that's why this healthcare debate right now is so important and uh, why we have to defeat uh, this new iteration of, of Trump care, and which would uh, do some, uh, would end the guarantees for protections for people with pre-existing conditions, uh, would end the protection that you won't go through a lifetime cap or an annual yep. cap and get cut off, It'll, you know, end the guarantees that there are certain essential health benefits and policies, all kinds of things wrong with this damn thing. And we, we Senator Grassley, uh, two days ago, said to the Iowa Press Corps on a phoner, he said that, well, uh, you know, I can name 10 reasons not to vote for this, and I just named like three, but they're like, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons yeah. why this, you know, tens of millions of people would <laughs> lose health, health coverage. And he said, but, you know, we promised to repeal and replace, so I guess I'm going to vote for it. You're going to vote for him. And, I, you know, and I like Chuck Grassley. He's a friend of mine, but this is terrible. That's yeah. not why you, right. you, don't, you don't do it for, it's not about politics. It's about, this will hurt so many people. And so... Uh, of course, earlier today, as you know, as we were doing our business earlier this afternoon, and most of the audience probably knows this, John McCain came out and said he's a no vote on yes. this bill. And um, the, the assumption of a lot of people, because there's a crucial deadline coming up September 30th, beyond which they would need 60 votes to pass a health care right. bill, which is assumed not to be possible, so they've got to get it done next week. The assumption is, well, McCain saying no kills it, but in fact, there's still one more vote that has to officially, unless it's happened in the last 10 minutes, well, that has to be officially a no before you can say Rand it's Paul dead. is said he's a no, but we don't, you know, Rand is Rand. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I don't think Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins has said... Uh, You're reasonably optimistic that this will not happen, though. I am... Uh, the, we, we still got to fight... We're still, until, I'm until not the 30, assuming right, a yeah, damn right, thing. Right, right. Um, you know, I just as I talked about Grassley, I just and my first, you know, when I first got to the Senate, the first day I got to the Senate, I get on the after I get sworn in, right after I get sworn in, Jim Dement, very conservative uh, Republican from South, South Carolina. Carolina at the time. Now he, 
he's gone on. Um, he's retired from there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, I get sworn in, and, and Jim comes up to me and says, how are things on the far left? And I said, they're great. How are things on the nutcase right? And he and I were friends ever since. Ever, ever since, right. Because, you know, we just gave each other crap and laughed, and that's... Is that. it, isn't that the glue that holds people together, the giving of crap, right? Not everybody. Um, <laughs> some don't have a sense of humor, but Grassley, so yeah. I uh, just tell this... Yeah. Story. So uh, I get in the subway that goes from the Capitol to the Hart Building, and Chuck's sitting right across from me, and he goes... Oh, you look just like you look on TV. <laughs> and I said, well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I said, but uh, actually, uh, you know, a lot, some people say that I'm shorter than I look on TV. He goes, oh, yeah, well, guess what they say about me? And I said that you're taller than you look on TV. He goes, yeah, how'd you know that? <laughs> and I said, well, because you're taller than you look on TV. And I said, well, guess what else they say about me? I, that you're friendlier than you seem on TV. Yeah, how'd you know that? <laughs> and, and I said, well, because you're, you're friendlier than you seem on TV. And I said, you know, it wouldn't hurt when you, do a, uh, when, when you do an interview to smile every once in a while. And he said, well, normally what I'm talking about is pretty serious. And I said, so I don't smile. I said, well, you could smile at the beginning <laughs> and talk about the serious stuff and then smile at the end. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you so, are, right, right away, changing the Senate, changing yeah. behavior. It, so, so you come in with the Wellstone bucket of ideals, the Wellstone philosophy that we're here to help people. Is the Senate institutionally situated to allow you to do that? Yes, every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, not always. Um, you know, we were, the, one of the tragedies, I don't know if it's tragic yet, of this, uh, this new iteration of Trump Care is that we were doing a bipartisan, we were having bipartisan hearings in the HELP Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committees, to f shore up the exchanges and lower the costs of them. We knew how to yep. do it, and we had five... Yes, I mean, we had five, uh, the first day of hearings, we had five uh, insurance commissioners, three Republican states, two Democrats. They, all five agreed that we should do, continue to do cost sharing and we should do reinsurance. And I won't explain these because I don't want you to get angry at me uh, for boring you. So, um, but they're really important. And then we had five governors the next day and three from Republican states, two from Democratic states, and they all agreed on this stuff. We, and then we had, uh, next week we had uh, two hearings as well. And not only that, but we had coffees. We had these hearings at, uh, at 10, in the, from, uh, you know, 10 in the morning, but at nine we had a coffee so that everybody, every other senator who wasn't on the committee could, could ask questions. Yep. And so we had like half the Senate with these people. This is how you're supposed to do things. Right. And we were doing it. And, and we were, uh, Lamar Alexander, the chairman, and uh, Patty Murray, the ranking member, were negotiating, yep. and 
Lamar said to Patty that, oh, that's, that's a good offer, the last offer. And then, bum, McConnell pulled the plug made, made, made on it. And that's the worst kind of thing. And to do this, this uh, terrible, cynical thing that we, we don't have the CBO score on it, the Congressional Budget Office score, it, it, it is just a travesty. Right. And so... You understand uh, why people are cynical about government and cynical about the way government approaches the solving of these problems. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, part of the reason McCain said he wouldn't vote against it was that it did not go through regular, regular order. order right. When he had come back from Arizona after his cancer surgery, of course, he had... Um, uh, he gave a speech on the floor, he got a standing ovation, and the essence of the speech was, we need to work together right. and do it through regular order. Yeah. And, of course... I mean, this is a guy coming back after you know, yep. surgery for brain cancer, getting a standing ovation because he said that, and then boom, this is what right. uh, is, is, does. Senator, is bipartisanship po possible? I mean, obviously it's possible, but in the context of the politics of the moment particularly, people talk about it like it's this you know, thing that we all agree is a good thing. But I'm not sure that, that everybody would say that it's a good thing. It depends what we're talking I mean, we yeah. were doing it. Yeah. We were doing it. It was Mitch right. McConnell pulled the plug on it. We'll do it. We'll do bipartisan stuff. You're willing to work with Republicans? Yeah, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, in order to get anything done. Are Republicans willing to work with you? Yeah, we do it all the time. I mean, this is what, it doesn't get much attention. Uh, John Cornyn and I have done a number of things together. Don't vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if I if I ask him, if I ask him about that Sunday, will he admit working with you? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, he will. I mean, we did this. I mean, the thing first comes to mind is this thing called the uh, Justice Mental Health Collaboration Act, and it's about it's about mental health and the criminal justice system. And first of all, there's too many people in prison because they have a men mental illness, and being in prison ain't going to help their mental illness. So we have these things called uh, mental health courts. And when the arresting officer and the prosecutor and the judge and the defense attorney decide this person belongs in mental health court, then that's where they go. Yeah. And, may, and instead of going to prison, maybe they get treatment and housing. And so uh, th then... and. <laughs> And we do this thing called, uh, uh, part of this was crisis intervention training, which is right. training for uh, law enforcement to, to, to understand, to be able to identify when a mental health issue is energizing a situation, to identify when someone, when what's happening, and this prevents, one, police from killing people, and also it helps their safety, too, and uh, it, 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 you can de-escalate a situation yep. if you have this training. I asked a, uh, in Columbia Heights, Minnesota, it's a, su north, a suburb of, Min of Minneapolis, I went to a, um, uh, they, their whole force had crisis intervention training, and I said, can someone just tell me, the police chief said that that the day after he got the training, he didn't kill someone he would have otherwise killed. Yep. And I said, can someone give me a more garden variety story? So this police woman said to me, 
okay. I, asked, I just pointed at her, and she said, okay, garden variety story. Um, a few months ago, about four months ago, I was out on the street, and I heard a woman screaming, and I thought it was a domestic dispute, yep. but no, it was just her. And when I approached her, she went to a railing overhanging a playground and threatened to drop, and she wouldn't have killed herself, but she would have gotten very hurt. I uh, recognized what it was uh, right away, and I was able, because of my training, to because talk, of the her, training. talk her off. And then I started talking to her, and she told me that she had been sexually abused as a child and that the person who did that had left the community, and now he had just come back. And, and she said, I said to her, I think I know where you, I can get you some help. And he, she connected with the community mental health people. And she said, then I was working a street fair about a month ago, and she came up to me, and, she, and this woman approached me and said, um, you saved my life. Well. And I said, that's your garden variety story. That's garden variety, right. Well. And she said, she said that I'll holster my gun maybe once in my career, but I use this all the time. Well. And that so, was you so and John and Cornyn you know, and I did you, this. You, you, bill. you and Cornyn did it. So bipartisanship is possible. But don't right. vote for him. <laughs> you know, I, there, there, I don't want to be accused. You will accuse me of running this through the dehumorizer. But there is a point in the book where you talk about the struggle for some Democrats when it comes to working with Republicans. You say, on the one hand, Democrats think Republicans are awful. We have to help America fight them at every turn. Right. But on the other hand, Democrats think Republicans exist, and we have to help America work with them at every turn, and that that is a tension for, for Democrats. Right? Yeah. Uh, um, and again, thank you for the caveat that I was joking there about dehumorizer about right. their but, but, the, but you about understand Republicans the, being awful. The, but, the tension um, these days. I mean, some are right. Uh, but, you know, some Democrats object to the idea... I write about Ted Cruz in the book. Oh, we'll come to Ted Cruz. Oh, we will come to Ted Cruz. Right. I write about some, some, But, you know, that some, some Democrats take the position these days that, hell no, we're not going to work with people in the other party. No, 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 not at all. We're not going to work with them. We, want, we don't think our job is to meet them halfway. They need to come to, they need to, come to us. And, in fact... Well, it isn't necessarily go halfway, but... You know, and a lot of things aren't just, uh, they can't be just about halfway. Right. Uh, but sometimes they have to be. Sometimes you have to compromise to right. get a... To get something done. To get the, keep the government running. Right. I mean, you know, you have to come up with a compromise on, on a continuing resolution. On, on so you don't, you don't have any beef with Schumer and Pelosi, or Chuck and Nancy, as the president calls them, deciding to do a deal, make a deal with the president. You don't have a problem with that. No, I mean, if it's a deal with saying that we're going to... Uh, you know, uh, help dreamers. No, You're of course that. not. Yeah. That that's that's a great. That was good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. And you and you and yeah. so in a similar, in a similar vein, if the president realizes that he can get things done, maybe not everything he wants, but he can get some things done by working with Democrats. You would encourage leadership to continue to work with the president. God, yeah. I mean, if it, it depends what it is. I mean, you know, um, building a wall. No, no. Right. Um, I think he made a promise that it would, Mexico would pay for it. And How's that working out? Uh, Mexico's not going to pay for it, and it's so we're not. I, we should look at it, after this awful. Uh, well, you'd be for super, it if Mexico paid for it. What? You would not be for it if Mexico paid for it. No, it's. I think it's a bad idea. 
regardless, but considering what happened, what's happened with uh, in 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 Texas here with Harvey and what happened with Irma and what's happening in Puerto Rico, we're not. There's no appetite to pay twenty five billion dollars or whatever it is for this this wall. So I mean, you know. When Chuck Grassley says, well, you know, we, we promised to repeal and replace, so I guess we should vote for this thing, even though it's terrible. Um, you know, uh, the president also promised he wouldn't cut Medicaid. Right? What happened to that promise? Where's that promise? And so, uh, no, we're, that's a hell no. We're not going to... So there's no amount of bipartisanship that would enable you to vote for that. That's it. No, I mean, this, we were the ones being bipartisan. We were working right. in this uh, through the help committee. We were doing exactly what John McCain asked and, for, and, and it regular right. order. That was us. So, so you brought so, up Ted And yeah, that yeah. was Lamar Alexander, and that was the Republicans on the committee. So you brought up Ted Cruz, someone who is of no small interest to the people in this room, people who are from Texas. He'll, he'll also be here in two days. Is there anything you want me to tell him for you? You want me to tell him hi for you? Uh, say hi. Say hi. Say the Al, Al says hi. You, you made the decision to devote an entire chapter of this book to Ted Cruz. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is what you need to know about Ted Cruz. I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> And I completely justify it in the thing. I, I, his chapter is sort of the exception that proves the rule. And the exception is, uh, I mean, he does not, he's like a toxic coworker. He's like the guy who microwaves fish for lunch. You know, he's the Dwight Schrute of the Senate. He doesn't make an effort to get along with everybody, and his word is not good. And I, I tell this story in there, which is pretty shocking, about a conversation I had with him and, and his not being uh, honest. And also, so he just made no effort to, he just was, he got there and just offended people uh, right away. It was just awful. And he doesn't get stuff done because of that. And now, you don't think he's gotten better over time? As you, I mean, if, if you stipulate what you just said I think is true, he's, has he gotten better over time? I think that lately he's been, I, I actually think he may have read the chapter and gone like, <laughs> and gone like, uh, yeah, I, that's right, that's, that's accurate. You know, I think I, I, I mentioned to you earlier today that my favorite thing in this book, in the entire book, is an anecdote that you tell involving Amy Klobuchar writing jokes for the gridiron dinner? Sure. I well, want you to, it involves Ted Cruz. Okay. It is my favorite thing in the whole book. I, I wonder if you would please tell the story. Okay, well, this is Ted had alienated everybody right off the bat. And he did it on a whole bunch of things which I talk about, write about in the book. And then in, I guess it was March or something, you remember the carnival cruise that had gone out to sea, and then the engine died, and it took like 10 days to get it back, and nothing on the ship worked, including the bathrooms. And so 
it was nicknamed the Poop Cruise. <laughs> now imagine that you've saved and you wanted to go on this, finally saved all your life for a luxury cruise, <laughs> and this is your cruise. So, um, so uh, Amy then is picked to do the gridiron dinner, and Amy will not, uh, Amy Klobuchar, my senior senator, she will not let me write jokes for her. Because she doesn't, when if she wants to be honest, when people say, did Al write jokes for you? She wants to say no. She will run them by me, okay? <laughs> and so she had written this joke about, uh, uh, this was a joke. When most people think of a bad cruise, they think of Carnival, but we think of Ted. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, a fine joke, a fine joke. I mean, really, for a non-professional, that's pretty good. No, right? it's that's a good, a, that's good, a good fine, joke. fine joke. Good I joke. have a rewrite that I, I think was a better, you know, I had a rewrite for her. And uh, about a week later, I see her on the floor, and she goes to Chuck Schumer, whom she had written a joke about, and she goes to another senator who she had written a joke about. And I'm going like, oh, I see. She's, because this is the Thursday before... Right the gridiron, she's getting permission from the people she wrote jokes about. So then she starts heading over to Ted, and I go like, I want to be here for that. And I, 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 so I sort of inject myself into a conversation triangle, and she says, um, Ted, I'm doing the gridiron dinner on Saturday, and I've written a joke about you, and I was hoping I could get your permission to tell it. And he says, well, why don't you tell me, what the, tell me what the joke is? And she said, okay, when most people think of a difficult cruise, now she's changed bad to difficult, just to soften it a little bit. They think of carnival, but we Democrats in the Senate, so she's added Democrats in the Senate to soften it also, instead of we think of Ted. We Democrats in the Senate think of Ted. And he goes like, I'll tell you what, what if you change difficult cruise to a challenging cruise? <laughs> and Amy's kind of going like, okay, now the joke's just not funny. <laughs> and, and Ted's smart, I say, Ted's very yeah, smart. Yeah, yeah. And he sees that, and he goes like, I'll tell you what, I believe in the First Amendment, you go ahead and tell your joke. <laughs> and so I'm going like, oh man, what a patronizing, whatever the word would be. And so I said, Ted, uh, I actually did a rewrite of Amy's joke and I think it's better, you wanna hear it. And I see Amy go like, oh my God. <laughs> He's gonna, but I wanna be here. So I said, and Ted goes, oh sure. And I said, okay. When most people think of a cruise that's full of shit. They think of carnival. 
We think of Ted. <laughs> and And Ted just kind of, he had nothing to say, and I just went, and, and went away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was fun. Yeah. But I mean, you know, uh, what can I, I just, no, no way, the no exception way to top that proves that, yeah. the rule. No, no way to top that. Uh, and, uh, you know, but most of my colleagues, and I'd say Ted, one of the reasons I like him is he kind of values humor. I mean, he, tell, he tells jokes, they're not particularly good, but they're not, they're not awful, usually. Uh, and so uh, there, I have had the experience of um, most of my colleagues have very good sense of humor. Lindsey Graham, who I hate what he's doing right now, he is probably the funniest uh, Republican, certainly. Uh, Pat Roberts is very funny. Uh, he was a Republican from Kansas, but like when, when Lindsey was like running 15th out of 17 in the Republican primaries, uh, for president, I went up to him in the Senate, and I said, you know, Lindsey, if I were voting in the Republican primaries, I'd vote for you. And he just said, that's my problem. <laughs> didn't, didn't miss a beat. Did not miss a beat. Didn't miss a beat. Yeah. And, but most of my colleagues have a sense of humor, but Tom Coburn, Tom Coburn, uh, Dr. No. Former senator from Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma. Uh, he's known as Dr. No because he was, a, he was an obstetrician gynecologist, and No because he was against any federal spend. He was a federalist, a strict right. federalist. So he would put holds on stuff, and uh, so he's Dr. No. So my first, oh, three or four or five exchanges with him were just, whew, whew, just missed completely. Yep. So at one point, I just, maybe two weeks in, three weeks in, I just said, um, you know, Tom, can I take you to lunch? And he said, well, take me to breakfast. <laughs> and I said, okay, good, good. So we meet in the Senate dining room, 8 a.m. for uh, breakfast a couple days later, and uh, I said to him, Tom, for the next 40, 45 minutes, whatever this is, let's just have fun. Okay, and he goes, okay, fun. <laughs> and uh, I said, we can talk about anything. We can talk about our families. We can talk about uh, politics. We can talk about our careers before we came to Congress. Uh, but let's have fun, okay? And he goes, okay. So I say, uh, careers, our careers beforehand. Now, let me ask you something. To be a doctor in Oklahoma, do you have to have any formal education? <laughs> and, and he says, yes, you've got to go to medical school. <laughs> and I had identified our problem. And so I said, okay, that, that was a joke. And, and that's, that's what I did in my career before I came here, you see. And, 
And then uh, explained that, and he went, oh, okay, and he calmed down. And then from then on, we had, uh, we had fun. I, I explained him what jokes were. <laughs> And uh, good relationship the, after that. Right? What the proper reaction right. to a joke uh, <laughs> is, and he wrote me a note later. I got a note uh, that, I, that I had a lot of fun. Good. There it is. So then, when um, I uh, was writing the book, yep, I uh, followed Senate pol- uh, kind of the courtesy of the Senate, unwritten, but. If you're going to write something or you're going to tell a story publicly about another a private conversation you've had with another senator, I'd make the exception to Ted, but um, uh, that that you get their okay if if the could possibly make them you know if in their mind they think it might not make them look good. So I call up Tom, who's in retirement. I call him in Oklahoma. I go, Tom. I go, hi, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so I said, remember that breakfast we had? And when I asked you, you know, do you need any formal? They go, oh, yeah, 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 I do. I go like, okay, well, I'm writing a book. And I was, uh, you know, wondering if it'd be okay if I could get your permission to tell that story in the book. And he said, we have a First Amendment. You can write anything you want. Pretty good. So I, I said, well, I was just trying to do it as a courtesy, and he went, well, you're a gentleman, but we have a First Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> and if I write a book, I'll write anything I want. That might be one of those funny senator books, actually, that we talked about earlier, right? That will not be the funny That will not be senator. the funny senator book. <laughs> So we have a couple of minutes uh, left before I want to transition to audience questions. Last two chapters in this book are about President Trump. Uh, last chapter is about the election, or the second last chapter is about the election. Last chapter is inauguration and, and after, which opens the door, and I'm going to walk through it. I want to ask you about, uh, I want to ask you about the president. Can I, do, but can I talk about the last chapter? Oh, of course, go ahead, sure. Um, I'm not a fan of Trump's. He came to Minnesota, uh, for the first time, he did a rally in Minnesota on the Sunday before the election. And he came, he landed his plane at the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul airport, and he trashed the Somali community in Minnesota. And he said to the crowd there, you've suffered enough. And he just didn't know what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, so... I, I talk in this last chapter, is, it's about being as good as the people we represent. And I talk about Wilmer, Minnesota, which mm-hmm. is in uh, south-central Minnesota. It's an ag town. It's a, Minnesota's the largest turkey-producing uh, state in the country, and Wilmer is the county seat for Kandahar County, which is the largest turkey-producing uh, county in Minnesota, Genio Turkey is in Wilmer, and the year and a half before, about a year before, I was in my office in D.C., and there was a new, uh, one of my staff came in and said, there's a new class of pages, Uh, and we have these Senate pages. They're all juniors in high school. 
and we have 30 in each class. So we don't usually have a, necessarily have a Minnesota page. And I said, well, there's a Minnesota page, and she's a Somali uh, Minnesota girl from Wilmer. And uh, her name is Muna Abdullahi, and she, her principal had recommended her, and uh, she did, she interviewed with our staff, uh, you know, in Minnesota, and she was terrific, and she wrote a great essay, and so she's here, she's here. Yep. So I said, well, let's go down, and I wanna go down and meet her. So I go down to the Senate floor, and the pages are all there, and it's easy to pick her out. Uh, she's Somali, and she's wearing her hijab, her headscarf, uh, over her page uniform. So I go up to her, and I say, you look like a Minnesotan. And, uh, and she smiled. And I got to know Muna. Yep. And she was a really unbelievably great young woman, young lady. And when the Somali ambassador had, came to Capitol Hill to meet with uh, members of Congress with Somali populations in their state, I made sure to bring her mm -hmm. uh, so that he could see that a Somali a Minnesota girl was a, was a page in the United States Senate. Right. And so in June of 2016, during this ugly, ugly election, um, Muna uh, was graduating. She was a senior, and she was chosen to be the, uh, the class speaker. And so I invited myself to the commencement uh, so that I could introduce her. So I go to Wilmer, and during this toxic campaign, this awful campaign year, this awful time, this was the best two and a half hours I spent Is that right? the whole time. Yeah. So I get there early, and we have some, there's some coffee and donuts for people who are involved in the thing, and I, Muna gives me a big hug. And um, so she is the class speaker. The valedictorian is uh, a girl named Meta Mara Marin. She was born in Ecuador. She is the valedictorian. Uh, the class president is Tate Hovland. Uh, I asked him, what is, he was half Norwegian, half German, which is like 60% of the class was half Scandinavian, half German. There was, so, and when I got to the, the sit on the stage, like we're sitting, and I'm looking at the program, there are 243 graduates, and about 60% were the Minnesota Scandinavian German, about 15, 20% Latino, about 15% Somali. And these kids loved each other. And there was a center aisle, so they have a really good orchestra at this place. It's not a big, <clears throat> terribly big town. They have a great orchestra, and there's a playing pomp and circumstance. The graduates come down. And Muna Abdullahi, ABD, she's first in the first. alphabet. Right. So, and they come down and break like that. So Muna's coming down 
with one of the Carlson twins, with Michelle Carlson, and they're holding hands. And Michelle is just giving off this, she and her identical sister, Mary, are just these, you could see, they had asterisks next to their name, you honors, you had one asterisk, two, you high honors, three were highest honors. Both the Carlson twins were highest honors. And they both gave off this aura, just this, this positivity and yep. joy. And her sister, Mary, was behind with, holding hands with a, a Somali boy. And they came down like that. It was just beautiful. Um, Tate gave his speech and got a huge applause. Uh, Meta gave her speech. It was great. She got a big applause. I went out. I introduced Muna. And um, she got this huge ovation. She gave her speech. It was great. She got a standing ovation. Um, the, they play the Battle Hymn of the Republic every year. That's something they do. They have a, a great chorus, too. It was the most stirring battle hymn of the Republic I ever heard. Um, my job was to give out, not to give out the, the diplomas, but take a picture with each one. Right. So I'm standing there ready to do that. And they make an announcement before they give the diplomas. They're saying, like, we, you know, wait until we you know, say all 243 before applauding. And they go, okay, first, Muna Abdullahi. The place goes nuts. <laughs> Just goes nuts. People stomping on the bleachers. They did it for every kid. So that's June of 16. November, election day, I go to the University of Minnesota. Moon is, is at the University of Minnesota. There are 40,000 students at the University of Minnesota. I'm going there to get out the vote. I run into Muna. She tells me that her sister, Anissa, was voted homecoming queen. Oh, wow. So we lose the election, you know. I'm, a week after the election, I'm back, I'm in D.C. The French ambassador, the ambassador from France to the United States is in my office, and I said, who do the French consider a Frenchman? She said, he said, well, basically a lot of Frenchmen consider a Frenchman someone who can point back centuries, several centuries, to the village that their family came from. And I said, and they don't consider immigrants Frenchmen. He goes, no, no, they don't. And I said, and you pretty much isolate your Immigrants telling me, I said, yeah. And I thought about Paris, and I thought about Belgium. And the thing about our country is, except for American Indians, we're all immigrants. We are all immigrants. And that's our strength as a country. That's our strength. There, they segregate immigrants and refugees. 
In the United States, we vote them homecoming queen. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to do any better than that. Um, we're going to take some questions here. I want to remind everybody, if you want a question asked, we're collecting them electronically. I've got an iPad up here. Questions are being fed to me. Hashtag AskTrib. Or there's a phone number to which, and I think it's going to appear above my head magically, where you can text AskTrib and a question, and we'll ask a couple of questions on your behalf. What happened? We've done this before, right? <laughs> um, here's a question from Aaron O'Connell. Please explain the resurgence of white nationalism in America and the consequences for America and for the world, Senator. Oh, that's simple. Yeah. It's okay. We have no place to be. It's fine. Well, I, I don't know, but there has been uh, permission um, to do this, and it's an ugly, ugly strain uh, in America that's always kind of been here, right? Um, and is uh, part of our original sin, and there are people who um, are mad uh, for uh, economic reasons that they... Uh, and look, I grew up in the 50s. My dad didn't graduate high school. Uh, we, he was a printing salesman. We grew up, my brother and me and my parents, and we were in a two-bedroom, one-bath house. And I felt like I, I was the luckiest kid in the world, because I was. I was growing up middle class, yep. at the height of the middle class, in America, in Minnesota, <laughs> you know, in St. Louis Park. And I just felt like I could do anything I wanted. And I think at that time, Americans, especially white Americans, felt it was their birthright that their kids would do better than... And now they don't feel that way. And there are some people that feel like, oh, these immigrants and other people, they're being handed a place in front of me. And I think that, you know, the reason I wrote, and part of the way I deal with Trump in this, I didn't want to write the Trump administration until my book was locked. I wanted to write about, I, what I wrote about was how this happened, how, Trump, how this happened. And part of it is, and the reason I wrote uh, Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and lies and lying liars who tell them was about lying. And about, but it was about right-wing radio, yep. Rush Limbaugh, and it was about Fox News, and they sued me. Bill O'Reilly sued me when Lies and Lying Liars, uh, uh, who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right, came out. They sued me. It was, a, it was just a misunderstanding. Bill O'Reilly didn't understand that in America, satire is protected speech, even if the object of the satire doesn't get it. <laughs> and so then, there, what I didn't get to write a book about is the right-wing internet and Breitbart and that stuff. 
And there was permission given to, to this. And Fox gave it, and Right Wing Radio gave it, and the internet gave it, and we have self-segmented where people get all their information from places that confirm their bias. And so this is really the, the fruit of that tree, right? This is all that stuff has led to the place we are right now. Yeah, and let's remember, it's always been there. The original sin right. of uh, our country is slavery. So there's, it's always been there. But there are people, uh, Senator, there are people who give the president, uh, credit is obviously the wrong word, but they, they cite the president's own statements over time and they say that he essentially opened the test tube and allowed the virus to get out. If it's been there all this time, what he's effectively done is given people permission to say out loud what used to be said yeah, privately. Yeah, you know, is that, is I that go, a fair criticism? I go around Minnesota and uh, I'll, people say that it, now people have permission in coffee shops to say things they didn't say before. Before, you, yeah. All right, here's another question. Uh, uh, we have a bunch of, of students from Coronado High School in El Paso who join us every year, wonderful young people. And their question, I guess, submitted collectively is, what role do you think youth in this country should play in politics, and how can you encourage more engagement on behalf of young people? And what was the last how part? How can you encourage more engagement on behalf of young people or by young people? Well, uh, it's your future. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we've had these super storms lately, and um, there's no question that there, the effect of uh, their destructive effect has been increased by global warming. We, we can't tie any one weather event to climate change, but we know that with sea level rising and with it being warmer and the atmosphere being warmer, that it, it holds more rain. And so that's part of what happened in Houston. I, you know, climate change is something that if you're in high school, um, you know, I have grandchildren now. I have three grandchildren, and I don't want them in 50 years saying to me, Grandpa, you know, you, you were a member of the United States Senate. Uh, you knew climate change was happening. Why didn't you do anything about it? And also, why are you still alive? Because <laughs> I, You'd be about 115 at that point. 116. 116, right, yeah. And... Uh, I will say it's because of all the NIH funding I <laughs> voted for. Yeah. But uh, so that's just, yep. you should get involved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whether it's about education, you know, we need to make, you know, I talked about my, my wife grew up very different than I did because her father, a decorated World War II vet, died when she was 18 months old. And she was one of five kids. She had a younger sister who was three months. And her mom had a high school education, and they were very poor. Her mom is a real hero. I have to say, her mom is a hero of this book. Unbelievable hero. Right. She's 95 years old. She's still around. Yeah. Uh, my wife, Franny, is a, a junior. My mother-in-law is Fran. And Fran raised, she was 29 years old when, this, when she was widowed with five kids. 
and they survived on Social Security survivor benefits, but sometimes there wasn't enough to eat. Often there wasn't enough to eat. When Bootsy, the youngest, was a little old enough, my mother-in-law went to work at, uh, you know, in the produce department of the supermarket nearby. And they made it because of Social Security survivor benefits. Uh, all four girls went to college because Pell Grants at that time, a full Pell Grant paid for 80% of a public college education. When Bootsy, the youngest, went to high school, my, my brother-in-law went into the Coast Guard and still works. He retired after 20 years, but he still works with them, and he's essentially an electrical engineer for the Coast Guard. Um, my mother-in-law, when Bootsy was old, went to high school, my mother-in-law got a $300 GI loan and went to the University of Maine. And she got three more loans, graduated, became an elementary school teacher. And because she taught Title I kids, poor kids, she had her loans forgiven. Every, everybody, every, all the kids, and my mother-in-law, all made it into the middle class. And they contributed to our society and still do. And they did it because of Social Security survivor benefits, because of Pell Grants, because of the GI Bill. They tell you in this country to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We all believe that. But first, you have to have the boots. Yep. And the government gave my wife's family the boots. The boots right. And this is why I'm a Democrat. And this is why, this is why you need to get involved because there is a, there is a battle. Yep. There is a battle and the people who, many of the people who voted for Trump, there are a lot of Franken-Trump voters. Well, in fact, Secretary Clinton won, won Minnesota by a very small 44,000 votes. She won by a point and a half. Right. I, you know, I won by 11, 10 and a quarter points. So there, but I've got to tell you, all this Trump care stuff, I, I'm co-chair of the Rural Health Caucus. I go around rural Minnesota where they voted for Trump. They hate this. They hate it for a reason, because they will be the hurt the most. Yep. Rural hospitals benefited so much from Medicaid expansion because rural hospitals now had much less uncompensated care. People who before would go, would go to the emergency room and had nothing to pay, would, the, the, the hospital would eat it. But now these people were on Medicaid. So guess what? The rural hospitals hired, <laughs> hired people nurses and technicians and doctors and they get better health care there and, and very often in these rural counties the uh, hospital is the largest employer if they do this to medicaid many of those hospitals will close 
And the ones who don't will have to fire people. Right. And they'll get worse care. And so they knew this. And these were, these, many of these people were Trump voters. I'd be at these roundtables at these community events about this, and people hated this, and they know it. And that's why it had like 17%. Any iteration of this had like 17%, sometimes 12%, sometimes 20% approval. And it was, I picked 17 because that seemed to be the most common, but also it's the exact same percentage of Americans who said they have seen a ghost. <laughs> And I really want to see the Venn diagram. The you want to see the crosstabs, right? Yeah. And see what that overlap yeah, yeah. is, because I think it's... Yeah. So we have time for one more, I'm afraid. Um, I was I mean, trying to filibuster. I know you were. I wasn't going to let it happen. And the last question I'm going to ask you is one that not only do people in the audience uh, ask, but it is a question that's come up a lot since you've been so actively out front. Uh, as part of the resistance to the administration since it's been in, and that is, are you going to run for president of the United States? Okay. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. Uh, no, I'm sorry. No, um, I don't. I, I don't want to be president. Uh, I think that the uh, president of the United States should be someone who wants to be president. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've I've gotten to. Uh, see the uh, the job of, of uh, president um, a lot uh, closer up as yep. a senator than I, I did as a comedian, <laughs> and I, I you know it's I I enjoy I like my job now I yep. like my job now and uh, I want to continue doing that job and I can be of service to my state and to the country as a senator, and I'm sure we'll find someone in 2020 who will uh, want to be president <laughs> and who will emerge from, from uh, many ca candidates and be um, a, a great but not you. president, but not, but not, you. not me. Um, you are really nice to come out and, sp and spend a couple of hours oh, well, with us today. My you're, pleasure. You're good. Um, I hope... I hope that all of you will follow the UT band, which will bust in here shortly and go out to the party. Senator Franken will be at that party, signing books, buy the book, see him, ask your questions if you didn't get a chance to ask it tonight. It's been a great opening session. Give a big hand to Senator Al Franken. Let's do a bow. Okay. One more. Thank you. You were great. Thanks. I really appreciate it. You too. Thanks. Good. Good. See you outside.